Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this, the first Wednesday taking place during the hiatus period of our podcast recording and releasing schedule. As we've been saying for the last few weeks, we are currently in a bit of a production hiatus uh, between seasons four and five of this show. Season five is going to pick up with Breath of the Wild sometime in the early spring. We're targeting late March or early April. We're doing that so that Matt and I have plenty of time to play Breath of the Wild and are not uh, killing ourselves trying to uh, fit huge chunks of playtime on a week to week schedule. So that's what the purpose of this hiatus, um, is, is really about. However, we are still going to be releasing content on this channel during this time. This episode is one such piece of content. This episode is a bonus episode that was recorded originally during season three, Skyward Sword. It is a conversation between uh, Matt and myself and frequent contributor Max Nichols of Bungie, where we lay out the similarities and differences between Skyward Sword and Breath of the Wild, talk about um, some interesting things that both games did and the ways in which they are more similar or more different than people give them credit for. It's a great conversation. It was originally behind a paywall on our Patreon, and it is now available to listen to for free to anybody who uh, is interested. So, Anywho, um, for the remainder of the hiatus, we will have a mixture of old bonus episodes like this one, new bonus episodes um, with a variety of guests. Some will be Breath of the Wild centric as we try to build hype uh, for getting into that game, uh, and some will be completely unrelated. So look forward to that. Um, and then we may have some more surprises along the way as well. So the uh, last thing I want to say before we get into this episode is that the schedule that we will be observing for our Breath of the Wild season, season five, is going to be posted on our Instagram channel today. So anybody who wants to start getting back into that game and wants to play on the same path that Matthew and I are playing will be able to do that um, I think we've come up with a really nice way to cover everything of substance in Breath of the Wild or at least everything that kind of would require its own episode um, but also you know give that season time to breathe it will be a little bit longer than seasons that we've done in the past but is not going to you know take up it's not going to be like double the length or or whatever so should be a really nice compromise there but uh, as always your feedback is appreciated and we would love to hear what you have to say about that. Um, please let us know what you thought of this bonus episode. Obviously, this is a little ways in the past. Um, I was not an employee of Bungie when we recorded this, and I am now. So um, just goes without saying that any any opinions that are shared in this episode were done uh, before I was a full-time employee of a gaming company. Max, of course, has been for a while and uh, has always had lots of great um Lots of great uh, little tidbits to share with us. So, Anywho, we appreciate you guys being here, and uh, we will see you again next week. Welcome to Sacred Realms. Huh? It's a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast special bonus episode. I'm your host, Lyndon Willoughby, and I am pleased to announce that I am joined, of course, as always, by my co-host, Matt Willoughby. It me. It's Matt. But also, if you listen to this week's episode of Sacred Realms, you know who our guest is for this bonus episode. It's the one and only Mr. Max Nichols. Hey, Max. Hello. 
I feel weird reintroducing you and talking to you like we haven't been speaking for the last hour and a half already. But. <laughs> we're, we're right on the heels of finishing our uh, sand ship episode and going right into the bonus episode. So uh, we're doubling up tonight, but uh, we're always happy to have Max on. He gives such a great perspective. Yeah, and I'm always excited to be on, especially for this topic of all topics. Uh, you have no idea. This is like half of what I rant to people about when I talk about Skyward Sword. So, uh. <laughs> oh my gosh! All right, well, just uh, just so you guys know, then the distilled contents of all of Max's online ramblings to other people regarding Zelda is going to come out in this episode of our podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> if nothing else, be excited about that. It's dense exotic he- matter. <laughs> <laughs> you get to hear about uh, Zelda and the differences between and similarities between Skyward Sword and Breath of the Wild from an actual game developer, not just Lyndon and I rambling about what we like and don't like. Well, thanks for like making the mission statement for the episode, just kind of like like it was nothing, you know, just throwing it out there. I, th- I thought we, we already kind of made that clear. In another episode, you have to treat this like its own thing. <sighs> You must maintain the illusion. I mean, everything's kind of blending together. It's late, and we've been drinking, and everything is fine. Uh, Okay. All right. That's fair. Uh, Okay. So the mission statement for this episode is we would like to have a discussion with Max about the similarities and differences that Skyward Sword and Breath of the Wild have from one to the other. And that's a topic that I think has uh, come to light quite a lot since Skyward Sword HD was released. Um, there's some ways, obviously, many ways that these games are very different from one another. Um, in their in their base design and intention, they're very different games. But also there are some surprising ways that Skyward Sword acts as a prototype for Breath of the Wild uh, in various mechanics and things that it does. And I, I, I don't know. I think that there's a very interesting discussion to be had there. Um, and it's it's a discussion that you could only really have, I think, living in a world where you're playing Skyward Sword and treating it as a new game post Breath of the Wild. I mean, would you agree with that, Max? Yeah, it's kind of interesting, right? Because Skyward Sword uh, sandwiches Breath of the Wild. It was the last major console Zelda game before Breath of the Wild, the main Breath of the Wild, and then we had a re-release of it, like, right afterwards. So it's, like, in this unusual place where we went to these two... We were kind of pendulum swinging between these two polar opposites um, that actually are very, very different from each other in some pretty fundamental ways. Um, so it's it's really great for this compare and contrast sort of setup. Yeah, definitely. Before we get into the main bulk of conversation in this episode, I just want to get into a tiny bit of housekeeping. If you're listening to this episode, obviously you are either already subbed to Apple Podcasts or to our Patreon and getting bonus episodes that way. If that is the case, we really, truly appreciate your patronage. Um, We feel like we're creating some excellent content uh, in these bonus episodes, and we really appreciate you guys being on board for it. Um, Please don't hesitate to let us know if there's any specific content that you would like us to be covering. Y'all are paying for it. You're supporting us, and we value your opinion very much. So definitely don't stay quiet. We, we are open to anything that you have 
to say. So uh, for Patreon subscribers, uh, this episode will be dropping in mid-October. You'll be getting a new trading card soon and another trading card design revealed somewhat quickly after that. So that's all coming quickly. Sorry for the delay on the Link's Awakening trading cards. There was a lot of life stuff going on around those, but they are uh, they should be in the mail at the point that you're hearing this. So finally getting back on track there. But without further ado, let's get into the actual discussion of this episode, and the thesis is, in which ways are Skyward Sword and Breath of the Wild similar and different? And to start off, Max, I would like you to give us maybe the elevator pitch on where you're at with each game. So, like, so tell us where, where you're at with Skyward Sword and then how you feel about Breath of the Wild as well and how you view those different games in as succinct as possible way as you can. Yeah, um, well, I I think they represent uh, opposing, almost opposite visions for the Zelda series. Um, they they have some drastically different approaches to stuff like overworld design and dungeon design and storytelling. Um, and there's there's kind of a history if you look at like Zelda interviews over the 15 years before Skyward Sword. Um, there's a bunch of kind of hints of the Zelda devs where they like allude to trying to figure out where they want to take the Zelda series. Like they're trying to solve these problems that they've been grappling with since Ocarina of Time. And they keep trying different things. They keep trying different art styles, and audiences. And I think that kind of culminated in the the disparity between these two games. Um, I personally think Breath of the Wild is, is the vision I prefer. Uh, it's, it's, I think it's the best game ever made. Um, it was, is a wondrous experience for me. The first, it made me feel like playing Zelda games felt when I was a kid, um, which is something I always am looking for. Uh, and, and Skyward Sword didn't do as much for me. I think Skyward Sword was most useful as a source of lessons to be learned so that they could <laughs> go the other direction for Breath of the Wild. Um, but I also well, am aware that there are many people who love Skyward Sword. Well, I don't think it's un- it, it, it is not unfair to say that the the majority of critical consensus, whether you know professional critical consensus like review scores on websites or just the talk of the town, is that Breath of the Wild is one of the is is a watershed game. Honestly, um, those games come around every now and again, and Breath of the Wild is one of them, and it does things that are considered revolutionary and that many games that come after try to emulate in various ways. And Skyward Sword, I think the common knowledge says that it is the end point of a game design um, sensibility that started with Ocarina of Time and a few uh, innovations aside continued into Skyward Sword. Like there were games between Ocarina of Time and Skyward Sword that were on on 3D consoles. We consider them the 3D Zelda games, but they all maintain a basic design sensibility from one to the end. And then you have a break after that, which results in Breath of the Wild. Is that fair to say? I do think that that's true, yeah. Okay, cool. So that's that's kind of the lay of the land in terms of how those games are perceived, I think. Yeah, I would totally agree. I think, you know, you've got the, the for as you said, fully linear Skyward Sword, fully <laughs> opposite of linear Breath of the Wild. And, you know, the, the interesting thing is the ways that they overlap, which there are quite a few. Um, 
there's obviously a lot of differences, but uh, that's what the episode's about, right? So Yeah, no, we'll I, I, absolutely. But I think it's important to just talk about up front what the cultural perception of both these games is. And we have to recognize that Skyward Sword is having a moment of rediscovery for a lot of people, right? Max said it's a sandwich on Breath of the Wild. Breath of the Wild is the main <laughs> event. It, like, But also I think that a lot of people are rediscovering some things about Skyward Sword that really did work. Um just because of the fact that it is the big Zelda game of the moment. Uh, I mean, that even though it's a remaster, we're facing uh, quite a long amount of years between Breath of the Wild's release and its sequel. And so that's what people have to talk about. And what they're realizing, I think, is that Skyward Sword has more merit than is generally attributed to it after the fact of its initial release. So, anywho. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of chatter of people... Being like, wow, it's better than I remember, or wow, I never played this and I'm playing it now, and I never realized this game was so good and I missed out. Like, there are a lot of people that are are loving this this remake. So, so I guess to start off with, uh, each of us is going to take a turn. Matt, I want you to go first. I want you to tell me one way in which, <sighs> tell me one thing you think Skyward Sword does very well. Mm-hmm. Tell me one thing you think Breath of the Wild does very well, and mm-hmm. they have to be different things. For sure. So I think, and I'm I'm just going to go from a, what is the strongest anchor point for each game for myself? The strongest anchor point for Skyward Sword for me is the story. I love every single thing about Skyward Sword's overarching narrative story. The way that that story is told through the dungeons, through the character development, through all of that is just absolutely Absolutely, in my opinion, the best storytelling that Zelda has ever done. It's world building. It's lore building. It's really it it becomes the cornerstone of everything else that has happened in the other Zelda games. And so I think Skyward Sword, its main point there is is that Um, Breath of the Wild, I would say it's its main anchor point for me. Is just the vast exploration and and the way that that gives you so much more game to play outside of the main thread breath of the wild feels like a zelda game that took side questing to the nth degree and just made an entire game out of side questing and it's not quite skyrim because it's still very zelda it's still very Zelda and like the way that they walk that line between how do we make a game that is really almost infinitely playable without ever beating it, but it still has a very Zelda identity. The way that they did that is I think it's strongest characterization and selling point. Cool. Max, you're up next. Yeah. I mean, uh, to, to put it kind of simply, it's maybe not the most interesting answer yet, but, uh, I mean, Skyward Sword has amazing dungeons. Um, I think it is possibly the highest like average dungeon quality of the series, but if it's not the highest, it's definitely up there. Um, I think they're all beautiful. They're all memorable. They all got cool puzzles or mechanics. Um, and they all do the, the Zelda puzzle box dungeon thing to some extent or another, uh, very well. Um, and in contrast, I think Breath of the Wild does overworld exploration the best in the series. Um, 
it is it's obviously what the whole game is right like the dungeons almost feel like an afterthought in that game sometimes but uh breath of the wild i would describe as a game about surveying the environment picking where you want to go and traversing towards that goal and probably getting distracted along the way by things you find in the overworld and then you repeat like that is the game loop of breath of the wild and what it's about uh, hiking gotcha so for me, I think the strongest point that I can say for Skyward Sword is that it is a it is a wonderful journey, a very specific journey that Nintendo takes you on. Uh, the story is the is the centerpiece of the entire thing, and everything that takes place in the game is serving the story. And it's a strong story, so I think it's fun. I, I enjoy it. Um, you know, the the traditional Zelda trappings augment that, the dungeons specifically, like Max was just saying. But I, I think it mainly serves a story in a way that a lot of Zelda games have not. It, uh, Skyward Sword is a an amusement park ride. It's uh, Space Mountain. You hop in a cart and it takes you from one place to the next to the next. And it's all fun and flashy and interesting. Breath of the Wild is a national park you go there you park and you just figure it out as you go and it's majestic it's amazing it's wonderful but it's all it's different every single time that you go uh it's completely open-ended and the experience that you have with it is limited only by the amount of time that you put into it really it's uh, uh, no two people have ever played breath of the wild the same way and you can't say that for Skyward Sword. And that's not a, a bash against Skyward Sword because we're talking positives right now. But I think that Breath of the Wild is the ultimate extension of go and just exist in this world in whatever way you feel like you want to. So. So, I was, OK, OK, so that's where we're all at with positives on one game versus the other. Uh, Matt, you start off again. We're just going around the horn. What is a negative of each game? What do you think Skyward Sword does not do particularly well? And what do you think Breath of the Wild does not do particularly well uh, within the perspective of, of Zelda games? I'm going to pick my top. Um, my, my top qualm with Skyward Sword is its um, abundance of filler content. Um, rehashing old dungeons, Tad Tones going back over the same environment three times, losing your items and recollecting them. Um, those types of mechanics in any game, I very, very heavily dislike. And Skyward Sword, unfortunately, um, has quite a lot of it. Um, so I think I would have to say that's my biggest qualm with Skyward Sword as an, as an installment. Um, my biggest qualm with Breath of the Wild is, I think will probably be both of y'all's biggest qualms as well, is the lack of true dungeons. Um, shrines are great in their own little way. Uh, the Divine Beasts are great in their own little way, but none of them are true Zelda dungeons. And I never, ever felt like I got a true full dungeon experience in Breath of the Wild, which is really the biggest reason that Breath of the Wild only cracks my top five your your big qualm with breath of the wild shatters any hope that i had that we would all not say the same thing i was really hoping that you were going to come at it with a uh, weapon durability 
and then, oh, don't get me wrong. I hate weapon durability. No, 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 no. You picked your one thing. You I picked did. Your one I, thing. I, like I said, I picked my one thing. I also hate weapon durability, but yeah, no. I do. Uh, lack I do not, of. I do not hate weapon durability. Lack of true dungeons is yeah. just cool. a killer for me. Okay, Max, your turn. Okay, um, so I'm going to approach this from the direction of like what I think their goals were and the biggest flaws that they had that prevented them or hurt their ability to reach those goals. Because like my actual biggest problem with Skyward Sword is the fact that it doesn't have a sense of exploration, really. I don't feel like I'm exploring a world in Skyward Sword, but I don't think that was even a goal of theirs. I think they they didn't they weren't even trying to achieve that. Um, so I will say what I think their actual weakest element of the game is is the the pacing, um, which is basically echoing what Matt just said. I think there's a lot of content that feels low value to the player. And like it could be cut. And I, I personally think Skyward Sword should probably be like 20 to 30 percent shorter than it is um, simply by just cutting a bunch of content. I think it would be a tighter and more engaging experience if they did that. Um, well, and the, the fun so thing about that, wild. Just, so, well, and just to so, take yeah. a quick aside before, before you say what you're going to say about Breath of the Wild. Uh, it's fun because I think that criticism that you feel like Skyward Sword could have cut 20 to 30% and it would be a better game. The thing I love about Breath of the Wild is that I don't know that it's even possible to render that kind of judgment against it. Like what does 20 or 30% of Breath of the Wild even look like, you know? Maybe you don't have 900 Korok seeds, you have 500. (laughs) Right, Uh, but, but I mean that's the thing. Like it's not... Anyway, that's just that's a fun side observation. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to derail you, Max. But like, you can't quantify Breath of the Wild. No, like you can't quantify Breath of the Wild as a game in the same way that you do Skyward Sword, because Skyward Sword is literally just uh, for however good or bad it is. People had different opinions about that. Certainly, Matt and I and you and you, Max, do. But like, it is just following a signpost to a signpost to a signpost to a signpost. You're filling a progress bar, right? And Breath of the Wild completely defies that structure. So I, I think that's interesting. But any, any, anywho, your negative point on Breath of the Wild. Uh, so my negative point on Breath of the Wild is is uh, pot- potentially a controversial one. But it is the, uh, I think, weapon durability system in Breath of the Wild was extremely vital to the game. I think it had to be there. I think they they, they were correct to have it. Um, but I think it was also the thing that had the most negative reaction of anything in the game. I know many people who hated Breath of the Wild because of the weapon durability, and they felt like they never cared about any loot or gear they found because it was all going to break. And like they just really demotivated various people. Um, so I don't know how they're going to fix this um, with because I think it was important and required for the game. But I think that they want to fix it. I suspect Breath of the Wild 2 will have major changes to the weapon durability system because it hurt the experience for so many people that otherwise would have loved the game. Um, and I think that hurt them, their ability to achieve what they wanted to achieve with the game. So I don't know how they're going to fix it, but I think they will try. All right. Okay, so now that we've all kind of said what we like and what we don't like about both Skyward Sword and Breath of the Wild... Max, I want to give you the lead here um, because I think you have a very interesting perspective on game design as a discipline, but also 
recently there have been a lot of conversations online and I'm sh- I'm sure that you've had with other people about the juxtaposition between these two very different games, how they're similar and how they are different. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether or not you think that Skyward Sword and Breath of the Wild are more similar than people give them credit for. Uh, I I actually think they are more dissimilar than people think. (laughs) Um, Really? They have even less in common than people realize. Uh, But they did have some commonalities that surprised me when I started playing Skyward Sword again. Some things I was like, oh yeah, I forgot that they had this in Skyward Sword, and it's like a thing from Breath of the Wild. For instance, the stamina meter. Um, I forgot that that was in Skyward Sword. Skyward Sword was the first game to have it. Uh, And it was obviously a major, major element in Breath of the Wild. Um, Another sword... So there are things like, well, I was going to say there, there are obviously, so w- would you say it's fair? Like, obviously there are some mechanical things that are similar between Breath of the Wild and Skyward Sword. The stamina meter, the paraglider slash sailcloth, and then weapon, or at least shield durability, yeah. right? And people see those in Skyward Sword and say like, oh, well, that's a precursor to Breath of the Wild. Um would you say that that's maybe too easy of a comparison to make? Uh, well, I think it's fair to call out, but I, I think those are relatively surface level details. Like they both have a stamina meter, but the stamina meter is used very differently in the two of them. Right. Um, like in breath of the wild, it is, it's, it's a source of freedom almost like you can climb any surface. It uses the stamina meter um, and over the course of the game, you increase your stamina meter and it increases your feeling of freedom because it lets you climb higher and higher and higher um, in a game that is already all about freedom. In Skyward Sword, it's like a moment to moment limitation. Like you can't um, do a swing, a spin attack as often because the spin, stamina meter or you can't climb for as long without picking up an energy ball, but they always have an energy ball. So it's not really a big deal as a limitation there. Um, It kind of mostly matters during like twilight realm or whatever it's called. Silent realm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and obviously in Skyward Sword, the stamina meter is not expandable. And in breath of the wild, you have a very clear choice to make. Do you want to spec into life or to stamina? Um, and that has drastic repercussions on the yeah. way that you play the game, especially early on. Let's divide this whole discussion up into a few different pillars. Number one that I really want to tackle is one that's near and dear to Matt's in my heart, and that is the way that dungeon progression happens in either game. Because when you play Breath of the Wild, I think that the team who designed it clearly intended the Divine Beasts to function as dungeons and in some ways they do i mean they are um they're tentpole sections of that game they're huge set pieces and they they act as i don't know structural girders (laughs) in the narrative of that game and it doesn't have a whole lot of those right uh 
but you still can't say that that they function as dungeons in the same way that we were talking about on the episode, the, the Sandship episode. Uh, we were talking about this Swiss watch of design that a dungeon is and how it requires months and even years of design to get it to function the exact way that it needs to. And I don't think we're al- – do you hear that? This is the downside of recording outside. There's a lot of weird-ass noises. Uh, But I don't think we're alone in the observation that Breath of the Wild just does not have – it does not have dungeons that are designed in the way that people are accustomed to dungeons being designed and presented in Zelda games. So let's talk about dungeons first. Do we like Breath of the Wild's approach to dungeons more than Skyward Swords or vice versa? And what do we hope they will do going forward? Because Breath of the Wild is a very singular vision for Zelda, and it's very different from everything that came before. And obviously, we're moving on to new things sooner rather than later. We have a sequel coming up. Whether it will be more similar to or more different than Breath of the Wild is an open question. We don't know a whole lot about it, but we got to assume that there's going to be some evolution on things that have come before. So, Max, I'm going to start with you. Do you prefer Breath of the Wild's sensibility around Dungeon versus Skyward Swords um, or vice versa? And where do you think the series should go from here? Yeah, um, that's a very interesting question uh, because... First of all, I think I prefer Skyward Swords um, as like standalone experiences. If I, if someone's going to be like, we're going to hand you a controller, Max, you're going to play either a Skyward Sword dungeon or a Breath of the Wild dungeon. I would say Skyward Sword. Uh, no, no questions. Um, other than who are you and how are you creating the scenario? Uh, <laughs> but um, <laughs> right, right. Exactly. I know that I think you can transplant a Skyward Sword style dungeon into Breath of the Wild and have it work very well. Uh, Skyward Sword has this entire philosophy where they wanted every situation, they wanted to be very sandbox driven. They wanted it to be a game where, like, um, you can solve every problem multiple ways. You can. You have a lot of freedom in the order that you solve problems uh, or whether to solve them at all. Like, right. There's, there's nothing that there's almost nothing in Skyward Sword or sorry, nothing in Breath of the Wild. That's really required. Um, literally nothing, I guess, except for defeating Ganondorf at the end. Uh, so those are kind of major design pillars of Breath of the Wild. But Skyward Sword dungeons and, and really classic Zelda dungeons at all don't really work with those pillars. Um, puzzles generally have a single solution. They're they're intricately designed around whatever that solution is. Uh, there's usually an order that you go through them in. I, t- I talked in the last episode about how Zelda dungeons have this. Um, they teach you the mechanics of the dungeon by showing by you by exposing you to them in like a very intentional order so that you get used to them and you like, you find it first in like a simple version and then they start expressing it in more complicated ways as you go through the dungeon. And that, that pretty much requires a linear order um, to do it that way. So what we see in breath of the wild is a weird compromise, right? Like they, they sort of tried to, they turned off your wall climbing for one thing. They turned off like a major mechanic of the game. 
um, to try to like limit you a little bit, right? To try to make sh- to shunt you down these more predetermined paths, but they also sort of tried to keep some of the sandboxiness because it would have been really jarring to go from the overworld play of Breath of the Wild to a classic dungeon that had no sandbox play at all. Um, so, so you're talking about in shrines, right? Where when you go into a shrine, it's it's all of a sudden very picky choosy about where you can climb on a wall and where you can't. Well, I'm specifically talking to the big divine beasts, the full-size dungeons in Breath of the Wild. Um, but it's also true in shrines. Oh, like, sure, sure. I mean... I mean, do you think that the freedom of movement that we're talking about contributes, I mean, mostly to that? Because in a classic Zelda dungeon where even things like your ability to jump are contextual based on whether you're on the edge of a platform or not. uh, And then you go to Breath of the Wild where all of that is completely open ended and you even have movement abilities like Rivali's Gale and it can launch you up in the air and you can paraglide anywhere you want. Do you think a lot of the inability i don't want to say inability but do you think a lot of the necessity of designing a different kind of dungeon just comes from the fact that an increased freedom of movement makes it difficult to to create a traditional zelda dungeon experience yeah that is definitely a huge part of it um and and to a certain extent they try to solve it by essentially taking away some of your freedom of movement like climbing walls uh, but they don't take it, all of it away. Like you still have Gravali's Gale, you still have um, very physical environments where you kind of like you can get knocked by physics up into the air. You can still use Cryonis to climb onto an ice pillar. Like you still have most of your tools. Um, and it's just it's hard to keep a player like the Avatar Love Link contained in where you where the designer wants them to be in Breath of the Wild. Um, to create that kind of very intentional linear or semi-linear like dungeon experiences that we're kind of used to. So for you as a person who has to solve for problems in game design, like you have to think about what is entertaining for a player to go through. Is it more interesting to you to think through an amusement park ride that is on rails, but needs to stay interesting from point A Mm -hmm. to point B? Or is it more interesting to think about a completely open experience where you let the player figure it out based on an admittedly incredible physics engine that you've previously created, you know, and they can just figure out yeah. a solution in their own way. I, I, I find it more interesting to do the latter um, as a designer like that. That's a harder and more interesting problem to me. The, the roller coaster style thing, which to be fair, I wouldn't, really describe most of Zelda as a roller coaster. When I think roller coaster, I think like Call of Duty, like corridor shooter, um, where you go from one cutscene to another, right? But uh That's it's the, <sighs> the the more open design is in the more interesting design space to my to me. That's fair, but I feel like and and this is hardly a thing that's unique to Skyward Sword. I think that 3D any Zelda dungeon design, uh, 3D or top down, previous to Breath of the Wild, there is usually you're set with a problem and there is one solution to that problem 
And usually you have to conquer that one problem before you move on to another one. Occasionally you can conquer them in, in whatever order that you choose or you can go slightly out of order and it's fine. But for the most part, you are going point A to B to C to D, whatever. And in Breath of the Wild, I mean – yeah, it's. You know, like we have videos of we have videos of people online who have found the craziest way to beat obstacles in shrines and divine beasts and all of these things. And it's not like yeah. they're breaking the game. They're using the physics engine of the game and they're using the tools in the game. And they're so incredibly versatile and they work in such a weirdly consistent way that it's possible. Yeah. I I, I, it, it sounds like heresy when I say this, but I think for a Breath of the Wild style Zelda game, I don't know. I think there's room for a traditional Zelda dungeon. Uh, I don't think those can coexist. That like I I, uh, I understand the, the future of dungeon design and that. No, go ahead, Max. Sorry. Go for it. I I do I do want I do want I want. Uh, yeah, I want Matt to say what he was going to say because I know that Matt, like obviously he, he doesn't love weapon durability, but his main dig against Breath of the Wild is the dungeon setup. And so I'd love to hear what he has to say. Yeah, so like it it, it hurts it hurts for me to know that like that is a, a objectively true statement like about the way that Breath of the Wild functions. And like I love Breath of the Wild for the game that it is. But like with the way that I approach Zelda games – and, and Glad, who's one of my favorite streamers on Twitch, has said this many times. He's a huge Zelda fan as well. Breath of the Wild is a phenomenal 10 out of 10 game. In, in his opinion and in my opinion, it is not necessarily a phenomenal 10 out of 10 Zelda game. Because like when I when I approach Zelda games, I approach them from a not only an exploration standpoint, which obviously Skyward Sword lacks, but a dungeon standpoint, which Breath of the Wild also lacks. So like you're you're trading mm-hmm. one thing for the other. And I, I know that from a design perspective, it's almost impossible to get a 10 out of 10 for both exploration and dungeon design, at least in the way that we're talking about now. But like, that's, that's sad in some ways, right? Like you have to almost decide which is more worthy of the well, investment. And it's hard to quantify because in for Breath, sure in Breath of the Wild, if you're just talking about the amount of entertaining play that a person can get in Breath of the Wild, that is literally uncapped. People spend hundreds of hours in Breath of the Wild, uh, and Skyward Sword is at best a forty-hour game, right? And I mean that sounds about right to me. And and like I don't want to say that one is better than the other. Like Skyward Sword to me is a very fulfilling AAA game experience. I feel like my sixty dollars was well spent on Skyward Sword. But if you're just talking about the amount of hours that a person can spend in the game and the way that the game enables you to do that, Breath of the Wild is unquestionably more versatile, I guess. Um, I do have some potentially, you know, comforting thoughts for you though, Matt. Oh, I love comforting uh, thoughts. <laughs> uh, Make Matt feel sorry, better. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, I have seen some people have a reaction similar to what you just had. Like shortly after Breath of the Wild released, I knew I was talking to some other Zelda fans and they were like, they were distraught because they believed 
they didn't love Breath of the Wild. They preferred Skyward Sword and Twilight Princess, and they believed that Breath of the Wild was going to be the future of the Zelda series, and they weren't going to get the kind of experience they liked anymore. They thought it was done. Um, and I know that I just said, like, I just said the whole the ominous thing of, like, I don't think there's room for this kind of dungeon experience in Breath of the Wild. Um, but what I really meant was I do not see an easy, I do not really see a path to create that kind of dungeon experience. Um, in that traditional sense, but a, the Zelda devs are better at making Zelda than I am. (laughs) They might see a way, they might find a way. Uh, and B, um, they did have an example of what I consider a, a possible future for dungeons in breath of the wild, which was Hyrule castle. Um, Hyrule castle felt like a big experiment to me. It was them. They were trying to make something that was both felt kind of like a dungeon where it was like cavernous interior labyrinthine space with cool stuff to discover um, while also having the same kind of sense of freedom and being able to solve problems in different ways that the overworld. Had. Well, especially because you can freely walk into and out of Hyrule Castle. Like when you go to a divine beast, uh, that is a contained experience. You do a cutscene. You're in it, and then when you leave it, uh, you know there's another cutscene that takes you out of it. But while you're in a divine beast, you are noticeably no longer interacting with the consistent world of Breath of the Wild. That's not true of Hyrule Castle. Yeah. I'm curious, what did you think of Hyrule Castle, Matt? I loved Hyrule Castle. Hyrule Castle is probably where I spend. Uh, so I play I play Breath of the Wild very much the way that I play The Witcher or Skyrim. I do. Everything that I can feasibly do until I get kind of bored with it. And then like I go do a main thing. So a divine beast and then I, you know, do some more stuff and then I go do another divine beast. And then like I kind of follow that formula until I am like maxed out and I'm like, cool, I've got my max armor. I've got my max weapons. I've got everything. I never, ever get like all the inventory slots for Korok seeds. Cause I don't have the patience for that. But like I, I get to a point where I'm like, I have enough weapon slots, enough shield slots, enough bow slots, blah, 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 blah. And my, I always wear the fierce deity armor because fierce deity link, in my opinion is the coolest link of all time. And I, I go <laughs> into Hyrule castle and I spend hours and hours and hours exploring every single possible nook and cranny of Hyrule castle that I can and before there's another blood moon that respawns all the enemies and then i go to ganon and like i will spend so much time just palling around killing everything exploring everything opening every chest i love hyrule castle and that's an interesting juxtaposition to the way that i play breath of the wild because when i i have played breath of the wild all the way through three times uh once in regular mode and twice in master mode and i have some self-imposed rules that I do in breath of the wild, I will create a structure for myself where I'm like, I'm, I'm setting, this is my first divine beast. I'm going to do this, this, and this thing before I go to it. And then on and on and on before I beat calamity Ganon, I need to get all 120 shrines and then post champions ballad also complete the champions, uh, dungeon below the shrine of resurrection. And so in some ways it's like, the game gives me the freedom to do that because you don't have to do any of those things. But I've played enough traditional Zelda games that have that kind of structure to where I sort of impose that upon <laughs> myself, you know? Feels wrong if you don't. Right, right exactly. Um, 
Were you were you done? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm done. Well, uh, well, I'm actually, okay. I'm, I'm, and I'm curious, Max, how you approach Breath of the Wild when you play it. So I was, uh, I really didn't want to miss stuff. I wanted to, I wanted to see everything, but I didn't want to follow a guide. I didn't want, and I didn't actually care about hundred percenting like the Korok seeds or whatever. Um, the Korok seeds are supposed to be an experience, in my opinion, not a goal. Uh, <laughs> That's fair. But uh, anyway, so what I would do is I would go to a new section of the map, I would reveal it with the tower, and then I would like thoroughly explore the shit out of just that section until I I had convinced myself that I had found all of the shrines in that area and all the cool stuff in that area. And only then would I go to the next section. Um, and I kind of did the Divine Beasts as I came across them in that order. Like I would sometimes choose which region I would explore next based on whether I wanted to do that Divine Beasts or not. And I did all of them before I, you know, all of them and all the shrines before I beat the game. I only played once. Yeah. So far. Yeah. But I mean, obviously, I think one of the big one of the big differences in Breath of the Wild versus Skyward Sword is that in Breath of the Wild, once you have the paraglider, you are completely freely able to do anything else in that game, including like shrines, divine beasts, whatever you are. I mean, sure, you might be disadvantaged based on the gear that you have just from an attack power standpoint or from a health standpoint, but you can yeah. do it. And in Skyward Sword, you get new items in every section of the game. And this is traditional Zelda. You get new items, claw shots, for instance. Until you have the claw shots, you you just can't go to a lot of places. And once you get them, the map opens up and you can go to the next thing. And it's, it's keeping you very much on rails. And I'm just – I'm wondering like I don't know that it's possible to combine those visions. I don't know that it's possible for a future Zelda game to have Breath of the Wild sensibilities but also block off areas of the map based on items that you accumulate or abilities that you require. I I think mm. like that's an interesting thought but also does that somewhat betray the base allure of a Breath of the Wild style game? Um. I do think those things are in tension with one another, but I don't think they're totally incompatible. Um, one of the things that Breath of the Wild is missing compared to other Zelda games is, I've talked about this on previous episodes, it's the concept of recontextualization. Um, that's that thing where like, you know, you're exploring an area in a Zelda game or a Metroid game, a Metroidvania game, and like maybe you see things in the environment that you can't bypass yet there are barriers you can't break doors you can't open um sometimes if it's if it's good it's like you don't even know what it is you can't tell whether it's like a a barrier or a tool but like you see some some recurring thing that you don't know how to interact with yet and then you get an item or an ability and suddenly uh, you look, you think back to all the times you saw these things and you're like, Oh, that's what that was. And it kind of, you kind of have this like clockwork thing going on in your brain where suddenly you think about all these previous objects differently. Well, and we just had a lot of that in Link's awakening too. I mean, yeah, get a new thing. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I saw this deal before. Clearly it was a thing. I couldn't progress past it, but now I can. And, and Skyward Sword had a little bit of it, too. Not not as much as some other Zelda games, but like stuff like the claw shot or the bow. Like you can think back to things that you can now interact with. 
Um, so when that goes well, that's a moment where you suddenly think about all these past areas totally differently. And like, you want to go back and explore them again. You're like, you have these curiosities that were like dormant for a while. Now they wake back up and you're like, what was behind that door? Um, and breath of the wild doesn't have that because you can go everywhere that you can see right away. Um, I think they could potentially recapture some of it. Uh, if they, 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 it's kind of just a matter of picking the right amount like the right balance between freedom and restriction um like what if what if they had what if it was a a series of three major continents this is kind of a not a necessarily the most compelling example but like what if they were like oh you have a mainland and there's a second major land vast but you can't reach it because you don't have a boat yet like you can kind of get that feeling that breath of the wild currently has on just the first continent's before you can get to the second one and maybe the third one's in the sky or something like, right. Like something like that, where like they can have a natural cutoff point. Right. Um, that's the sort of thing they could try to do to, to recapture some of that. So for the rest of the episode, I want to, I want to divvy it into two main points. One is based around a very specific criticism or not of breath of the wild specifically, which is weapon durability, item durability, the way that you interact with inventory and then the second one is going to be where does Zelda go from here? So item one, uh, and uh, we're all going to take our turn. And Matt, I want you to go first because I think you've got some very specific feelings about Yay. this. What is the future to, to you? What does Breath of the Wild's sequel need to do around item durability, inventory management? And how do you feel like it could take inspiration from Skyward Sword? So I think like my main thing and my my biggest my biggest comparison point here is actually The Witcher 3. And and the reason I say that is The Witcher does a really cool thing where in the beginning of the game and this is the way that I I really hope Breath of the Wild 2 goes. In the beginning of the game you do rely on the recyclable I pick up a sword or I pick up a bow or I pick up a shield or an armor set that has slightly better stats and I just kind of go that direction. But then in the end game you end up with a gear set that is meaningful that is meaningful to you and the way that you have built your character or, or and you know obviously the Witcher 3 being an RPG has you know character builds but even I feel like it, it would be functional with Zelda of you pick up the Hylian shield or the master sword or Link's tunics and those become less about durability and more about investment and it it incentivizes you to invest within the gear set right where it's no longer about you know maybe you'll find a sword eventually that is a little bit higher but you can invest within the uh, let's call it uh the story gear you can invest into the story gear to upgrade it to a point where sure if you find a sword that has better stats but you invest in your story gear that it gets it above those stats like i want breath of the wild to to go to a point where that is you have both you have some durability mechanics specifically in the beginning of the game but when you get to the middle and end game it incentivizes you to invest into the gear that you have from a story perspective or just like shoot i've got this shield that is really awesome that let's just say the hylian shield right like the hylian shield in breath of the wild is technically breakable but it would be really cool to me if they adapted the Skyward Sword style of upgrading to say you get the OG Hylian shield is breakable, but if you invest into it, it's now like 
the best shields you can get. And so you, you kind of go that direction with it. I, I, I do not, and I have never liked just having to go around and just grab weapons so that you have something that you can use in case your other one breaks. And that's my biggest problem with playing on master mode, especially when enemies regen health. I go through three or four swords to kill one Lazalfos because this stupid bastard is regening health constantly. And I'm just like cycling through stuff and it has no meaning. It has no meaning beyond how many hits can I get out of it. All right, Max, uh, where are you at with the weapon durability and how inventory should be meaningful in Zelda going forward? Yeah, um, I think everything uh, Matt said was was totally fair. Uh, especially since a lot of it was like recounting his like his player feelings, like how, how the system made him feel, how he how he wasn't invested in things. Um, and that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about when I said earlier that like this is one of the flaws with Breath of the Wild, that like this was a huge source of pain and disinterest and frustration for a lot of players who otherwise love the game. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about what the functions of the gear durability system are in the game. Um, the biggest one is is they wanted to try they wanted to try to give you stuff that you that was of value to you. Um, as you're searching around like a game that's that size is about exploration. They need to give you like hundreds, thousands, maybe even rewards, items, things to collect. Um, Cause if they didn't have those, like you, you wouldn't know what are you even accomplishing when you explore? Right. So they need to give you rewards for exploration. Um, that's like the most basic function that it fulfills. In a lot of other games, they fulfill that with stuff like ingredients for crafting systems or upgrades for your, the gear you already have. Um, there is an interesting dynamic, though, where uh, there's this concept called intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. Um, the, the simplest way to describe it is like you are intrinsically motivated to do things that you enjoy for their own sake, right? Like some people like rock climbing. Nobody's giving them a reward. Nobody's paying them. They're, they just do it for fun because they enjoy it intrinsically. Um, but an intrinsic reward, extrinsic reward, excuse me, is when you're paid. Like you you gain something, a reward, your, a money, um, access, social status, whatever it may be. There is a reward to doing an action. Um, and there's a ton of studies in psychology that have shown, uh, pretty consistently shown, that if you take something that people are intrinsically motivated to do because they enjoy it intrinsically, and then you start giving them on top of that extrinsic rewards, AKA paying them to do it, it reduces their intrinsic enjoyment uh, and their intrinsic motivation. Um, the way this manifests sometimes is like when I'm playing a game, like a looter game, Diablo, I generally don't really care about the gear I'm getting. I'm not motivated by the thought of getting new gear. Um, but when I play like Link to the Past and I'm getting like, find, if I explore, I might find a unique item that has a story to it, uh, like the ice rod in, the, in a random cave behind Lake Hylia. Um, that has more, more, a lot more intrinsically going for it. It doesn't feel like an extrinsic reward to me. I'm kind of rambling. Long story short, 
circle back around to Breath of the Wild. Um, for me, and for a certain number of other players, not everyone, they kind of did this perfect thing where they threaded the needle, where they gave you a bunch of rewards where I felt they were valuable to me and I cared about getting them because they had use. But because they were temporary, um, they, they were almost like power-ups, right? To pick up a sword that, that's kind of nice. It's not permanent. It's a temporary benefit. Um, it didn't fall into that extrinsic reward trap where it starts reducing my enjoyment. Uh, anyways, that was the magic of the item's durability system. The problem with it is it only did that for a subset of their players. Right. Not for Matt. <laughs> <laughs> or, or a lot of other people. And I, I kind of come down on, as far as item durability goes, that was not my main gripe with Breath of the Wild. And I have very few gripes with Breath of the Wild. Uh, and, and that was definitely not it. Uh, I understand. Like, I, I enjoy the gameplay loop of, one, picking up an item and knowing when to use it and how to use it, and then also learning where to reacquire that item once it's destroyed, you know? Because Breath of the Wild definitely incentivizes knowledge of the map and, like, knowing how to exploit its regeneration systems via the Blood Moon or whatever and coming back to pick up more versions of that item. And that was a lot of fun to me. That being said, going back to Skyward Sword, because, again, we're, we're kind of juxtaposing these two very different games... Um, <laughs> One of the things that I love the most about Skyward Sword is the way that it approaches gear upgrading, and this is almost exclusively through shields, but also through you know your bow and beetle and slingshot, whatever. It doesn't apply to swords, um, but collecting items to upgrade shields, and then the shield can still break. And if it breaks, then you have to go back and you have to rebuy the base version of that shield and you have to re-upgrade it again. And that was very much a precursor to Breath of the Wild's durability system. I don't think that a future Zelda game needs to have a system that's that simplistic. But I do think that there is there there are shades of inspiration there that they can take and use to great effect going forward. Um, I, I think that a future Zelda game could augment Breath of the Wild's durability system with a system where you are able to, uh, in certain very specific circumstances, as as a reward at certain points throughout the game, uh, create a semi-permanent item. You know, uh, obviously in Breath of the Wild, when you get the Master Sword. It is it like it has a durability meter, but once it breaks, it goes on a recharge. And uh, that's nice because you never lose the Master Sword. I do think that there is a system where you could be like, OK, every time you beat a Divine Beast, not that Breath of the Wild 2 is going to have Divine Beasts, but an equivalent thing. Every time you beat a Divine Beast, you have the option to upgrade a weapon to that sort of deal. Like it becomes permanent in your inventory. And yeah. if, if it breaks, it goes on a cooldown timer or whatever. Like I, the, the trouble there is that you don't want any regular old weapon to become as impactful as the master sword to your playthrough. But also I do think you want to be able to create an attachment, a permanent attachment to things that you find within the game. And this is, this is one area where I think that breath of the wild two uh, could adopt some destiny sensibilities around yeah, infusion baby around, around like loot right because in destiny right you get a and in breath of the wild you you can pick up swords 
that have specific stats and roles. It's not super deep, but it is there, and it will cause you to retain one item over another one. And look, Zelda never needs to become an MMO or a looter of any kind. Uh, well, uh, I mean, it kind of is a looter. I was about to say, now, Breath of the Wild kind of is a looter, but though. But you know what I mean. It's not like a – it's different. It's not the same. You're not motivated generally. Like you're not like I'm going to – the thing I'm playing for today is to get a better sword. Right. Exactly. exactly. Oh, that's fair. You're, okay, fair, fair, fair. more fair. of a means to an end. Yeah. Uh, and and I think that needs to be very few and far between. Like I think generally speaking, the weapons that you have in Zelda games going forward need to be subject to Breath of the Wild's overall durability system. Uh, because if you have a game world that is large enough – and has enough exploration attached to it, then that's just part of what you do, you know, defeating enemies and picking up their weapons. And that's just part of the loop. But I think that if you assume that the game ends at some point, Breath of the Wild is a finite game. Like you start it and at some point you can beat it and roll credits, you know. And I think that somewhere within there, there should be options very sparingly for you to go out of your way to collect enough materials or enough experience or enough whatever to invest into gear that you want to permanently take with you. So what do we, in relation to that, what do we think about the Witcher's mechanic kind of around item durability is um, repairing items? So every item in The Witcher 3 has a durability meter that once it reaches a certain level, as the durability of the item decreases, the effectiveness of said item also decreases until it breaks and is unusable. But you can offset that by either going to a blacksmith to repair it or you have repair kits that you can use. Do we think that that might be some kind of fun or at least feasible middle ground to, you know, item permanence? versus item impermanence i'm gonna i'm gonna bounce that one to you max because i feel like this is a very i mean item acquisition Mm -hmm. like sword and shield acquisition in breath of the wild is disconnected from your ability to progress in that game right so it's completely down to the satisfaction of the gameplay loop of acquiring and collecting things and not so much progression so there's um I guess the short answer is I think there's a lot of dangers there that is going to cause them to steer away from a design like that. Uh, the the most straightforward one is that it it devalues once you get a piece of item a gear piece of gear that's good it devalues anything that is worse than that piece of gear. Um, in Breath of the Wild, you kind of naturally value things that you pick up, even if maybe value is too strong of a word, right? But at least you care about picking up things. Um, because you have an empty slot in your inventory and there's a weapon right there. It doesn't really matter how crappy it is. And even if it's crappy, like maybe that's the weapon you'll use on the weak guy you find next. Um, so that you don't waste your good gear. So there's kind of always this flurrying ecosystem of temporarily valuing the pieces of gear around you, almost no matter how bad they are. Um, unless you're in master mode, I guess I've never played master modes. So I don't know how it scales there. We could potentially solve that problem by doing stuff like, oh, like you're, they're still valuable to you because those are the ingredients for repairing the better gear, right? Right. It's not a weapon anymore, but it's at least like a chunk of iron, right, that you care about as a crafting ingredient. Sure. Um, 
The other problem is it crosses the line into being the extrinsic reward that I was talking about before, where instead of being incidental to what you're doing, it is now the point of what you're doing, which has some of those psychological effects that I'm worried about. Sure. Um, and it also does stuff like now, uh, once you get a piece of gear, that's good. Like no other, no weak enemy is going to be a challenge again. So you need to get into like dynamic difficulty scaling and stuff like that. That's kind of not really a factor right now in breath of the wild. Right. Which I think is one of its strong points. Um, I do want to say before, before we move on max, uh, how do you feel about Skyward Swords gear upgrade loop? And do you think that there is something to be applied there to future Zelda games? Uh, I, I love it. Um, when I'm playing Skyward Sword, I care a lot about upgrading my pieces of gear, especially the items, uh, less so the shields, but especially like stuff like upgrading my bow or upgrading my, my slingshot because they're not just numbers going up. They are. Um, they become more they're, useful. They're adding, yeah, they're adding functionality to these pieces of gear. They do more, and that's exciting, right? Um, also, I care about these pieces of gear. I have a story. Like, I know where I got that hook shot. I know where I got that slingshot. Um, I ha- they have a history, and by I can spend time investing resources into them, and that makes me care about them even more. Um. And I do think there's a there's a future for that kind of design, even in Breath of the Wild style games. They have it with the the equipment, right? Like that's all durable, permanent upgrades. Um, yeah. Maybe there's a world where they have like one item slot that's permanent, and you can equip like your master sword or the harpoon you got after you saved Mifa, or like those are that's the permanent gear slot, and then these are the temporary gear slots that you pick up to supplement it. Like maybe there's something like that they could do. You know, and I think that's a really great I'm I'm glad you brought up the spear specifically, like because all the champion gear that you get in Breath of the Wild has nothing special about it from a durability standpoint to the point that, like, I don't use any of the gear that I get that were the champions gear because I don't want them to break. I always just put them straight into my house. And like, that's a little bit sad to me. Like, I, I get I get from a the fact that they're designing the core loop of their gameplay around item durability. I get why they can't just make all of the champion stuff infinitely usable, right? But it it in my opinion diminishes the value of it because it's just another bow. It's just another shield, it's just another sword unless I assign that value to it and then decide to save it by never using it. And that kind of sucks. Yeah. It's a trophy instead of exactly a thing that you exactly use, uh, in that scenario. Yeah, or you're like me and you you think, oh, maybe this is going to be special, and you use it and you break it, and then it's gone, and you have to like spend ten diamonds or something <laughs> to, to get it back. Right, 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 yeah, right, right, you're right. expensive. Yeah. Okay, so moving on to the final point of this episode, where do we think Zelda goes from here, having played Breath of the Wild? And also Skyward Sword recently. Like now that we've now that we've got both disparate uh, philosophies of Zelda game design in mind, and knowing that they both have their strengths and weaknesses, um, well, I mean, where do we think it goes from here? What is the strongest vision for Zelda going forward? Max, 
Uh, Hold on. So when you first posed this question a little while ago, I honestly thought you meant Zelda the character. <laughs> so I was, I was thinking, I was like, what do you mean? Where does Zelda go from here? Well, clearly, clearly, clearly Zelda, the princess gets her MBA, becomes a CEO and needs Get, gets her hair cut into a Bob style and decides to go cave diving. She, she needs no man. I mean, Zelda <laughs> nah, forges her own destiny. Zelda is a boss bitch she don't yeah, need nobody exactly that's that's what happens to zelda she leaves link and ganondorf behind <laughs> okay i'm sorry and Please becomes continue. successful <laughs> <laughs> okay no i has a hundred years of experience <laughs> containing evil spirits right. <laughs> that's a great linkedin profile right there <laughs> oh god no i'm talking about zelda the series like okay fair enough we, thank if you if we assume that it evolves mechanically past right. Breath of the Wild, but also hope that it incorporates things that we consider to be classically Zelda mechanics. Where does it go from here? And Max, I'm going to send this to you first. <laughs> uh, it's the million dollar question, right? Where are they going to go? I am super curious. So one of the things I loved about Breath of the Wild is that it was it was amazing. I loved it. I thought it was the best game ever, but it also felt like the beginning of a bunch of unexplored possibilities. Um, it, it feels like they could take it in any direction, right? Like they could go, they could be like, the next one is going to be a sequel to Oracle of Seasons, and it's like Breath of the Wild, but you can change the seasons everywhere you go. Or maybe they'll be like, we need to have fast underworld, that has that you can explore and it feels like exploring the overworld, but like different in certain ways um, because they didn't have underworld in breath of the wild. And that was a little bit weird for a Zelda. They game. did not. Yep. Um, you don't, you don't have that experience of exploring like underground ruins or temples or anything like that really in breath of the wild. Um, I, I think that they're going to continue doing largely what they're doing, which is like, freedom to solve problems in different ways with like physics system. And they called it a chemistry engine, uh, like their elemental interactions and stuff. I think they're going to keep doing that. Uh, I think that they're going to, to temper how punishing the item durability system is in some way. I think they're going to like find a way to have some degree of permanence or like items that you feel like you can have a story and that you're emotionally invested in and that you get to keep and keep using. I think they're going to bring back something like that. Um, and I think they're probably going to bring back something like world access gating, like the Metroidvania thing um, in some fashion, a little bit more than they did in breath of the wild. Maybe maybe the Sky Islands they showed in the trailer. Maybe like they'll gate access to them in some way. Well, or, because I think early re- or, so reviews of Breath of the Wild focus specifically. Uh, I'm thinking specifically about Jason Schreier's Kotaku review, where it said that uh, Breath of the Wild was all about saying yes to the player and never saying no. Yeah, right. And that is powerful, and it. it it absolutely contributes to why Breath of the Wild is such a groundbreaking game. But I also don't know that saying no to the player at certain very specific points is a negative thing. Like, and I, I, I don't know. Th- saying not yet. It's right. Not, not no, not but yet. not yet. You're not saying no. <laughs> you're saying not yet. Uh, I think there's a balance to be had there. Um, I think that if every single game post Breath of the Wild just says go wherever you want, whenever you want, 
at some point that becomes uninteresting, right? You can't do that. It becomes the same thing. Like it feels the same every time. You you can only play Skyrim so many times as much as Bethesda likes to re-release it every two years. (laughs) It's still the same game. Yeah. I, I think that they had to, they had to go, they had to really commit, right? They were like, we need to make this work. We're going to make this work. It's going to be all about freedom, all about saying yes, all about solving problems, however you want. And now that they've done that, I think they are going to be able to see the targeted ways that they can reintroduce some of those trappings that they had to drop along the way. Um, and they have a better understanding to be able to do that with. That's my prediction. Okay. Matt, I'm going to bounce it to you. So, like, I, I completely agree with everything Max said, and I want to expand on it just a little bit. Like, I think the the gatekeeping mechanic specifically, um, just in the trailer for Breath of the Wild 2 that they showed where they had the, the sky islands and you had the ability to, like, meld through the ground and everything uh, that that looked more or less like a guardian technology version of using the the bird statues in skyward sword um like i think that is going to be a big part of breath of the wild too and i think it's a good path forward as long as they don't do what breath of the wild did where they give you (laughs) all of those things in the very first section of the game right like if you pace those out to kind of give you not necessarily a linear path, but say like, hey, if you want to access these portions of the map, you need to go do this thing first. And like you could do that in roughly any order you want. Like if you wanted to go to the underwater section, you need to go do this thing and you can get there. And then if you wanted to go to the sky section, you need to go to this thing and then you can get there. And like I think there are ways that they can meld this formula to say like, hey, you have your base level experience and you can do all of the things that you want to do in this base level experience. But if you want to get to the next level, the third level, the fourth level and up to the final level, you have to do the X, Y, Z first. I think there is a way to do that. Um, I think that it is also able to be done in a way that honors the things that breath of the wild did very well, which is, explore the area around you to its absolute fullest with what you have. Um, I also think there there's opportunity there to say, if you're in a dungeon and I'm thinking specifically about shrines and divine beasts where they take away Ravali's gale, or they take away the ability to climb walls. Like, heck you go into a classic dungeon and Hey, there's a dark presence around you that has removed Rivali's Gale, Mipha's Grace, blah, blah, blah. And, a, and you're... A darkness. Exactly. So yeah. <laughs> one might say, right? Um, and, and you don't even have your self-res warlock anymore. It, exactly. Yeah. So, like, it it, it, tra- it puts you into a position where you're back to base and you're back to using the items and you're back to using your skills. And I, I think there is a way to do that. And what I would love to see from Breath of the Wild 2 is is a, a marriage of here's this area you can explore to its fullest, but there's also these areas that you can explore to their fullest once you do X, Y, or Z. And then like, it just, it opens things up, but it also is not so overwhelming and it gives, it gives purpose to what you're doing beyond just doing it. 
Yeah, I would say I agree with everything that you and Max are saying. I think that the future of Zelda is something that manages to marry the – so Max, you called it the chemistry engine. So what Max was saying earlier was talking about how in Breath of the Wild they have the chemistry engine, as, as he was calling it. I think in Breath of the Wild, you've got such an airtight economy of interactions between elements and how they interact with parts of the environment. And it is so it's it's so impressive from a mechanical standpoint. Like to this day, people are learning new things about how electricity interacts with whatever and right and it all makes sense it all makes sense internally with the the rules of that game it's it's baffling to me just how comprehensive those systems are and i don't think that they need to abandon that i think that's one of the great strengths of breath of the wild but if they can just kind of pull it back pull pull the freedom back just a little bit for certain high impact areas and make it more about traditional Zelda puzzle solving. I think that that's the way forward. More specifically, I think that if you have got more moments in your game, not many, but maybe two or three or four more moments in your game that are like when you first got the paraglider in Breath of the Wild that allowed you to just completely discover a brand new area of the map. If you've got those moments more times in your game, I don't think that that betrays the vision of what Breath of the Wild is. And and I think as long as you have those, then you can have everything that made Breath of the Wild fun with some slightly more traditional Zelda aspects. So... I don't know, which I think which I think is what they're going to do. I mean, the development team has mentioned uh, publicly before now that they understand that the dungeon problem, if we're calling it that, the, the lack of traditional dungeons was a point of consternation with pra- with uh, players of Breath of the Wild. And they have said that they have got some kind of answer to that in breath of the wilds sequel so what to whatever extent that ends up being true i don't know but clearly they're aware of it Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, and and that's really encouraging to me personally like i i I do love i know i come across sometimes as, as very negative about breath of the wild and and overly positive about skyward sword maybe but like i do love breath of the wild for what it is it, it is to me a a zelda version of many of the games that i just cherish you know the exploration the raw potential of doing whatever i want going and seeing things and going and just if i want to go spend an hour and do nothing but run around a field and find some enemies and kill them like breath of the wild is that game in the zelda universe for me and so like i i love I love it for what it is and I want to see it grow within not only that direction, but what a good Zelda game is. I guess to me, Breath of the Wild always felt like Zelda. Even like with certain notable exceptions where it was doing things that I was like, uh, traditional Zelda would not have done this, Mm -hmm. you know, but for the most part, 
Breath of the Wild to me always felt like Zelda. There was never a moment I was playing that game where I was just like, Zelda wasn't ever this to me, or I'm not in this world, you know? Right. And and maybe I'm unique in that, but like... I don't think I would say you're unique. I would say I, I think a lot of people would not necessarily agree, myself included, but... Um, and I think the one thing that really drew me into the Zelda universe within Breath of the Wild was the way they told the story through the memories and through the characterization. And like that was very fantastically done. But outside of the main quote unquote main storyline of um, Breath of the Wild, it didn't necessarily feel super Zelda E to me. It felt more exploration-y, more Skyrim-y. And I was just like, I, 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 like, I like it. But it's it's not hitting the Zelda high note for me. And 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 whereas Skyward Sword was the exact opposite, right, where it was hitting the Zelda lore, the Zelda story, the Zelda immersion, but it was not hitting any of the exploration. It was not hitting any of the, you know, some of those other things that we look for in Zelda games. Right. So both have faults in exact polar opposite regions, but equally telling and and I think you have to, if you're Nintendo, if you want to like make a Zelda game that resonates with, I mean, let's call it 85% of people, because no one's ever, you're never going to hit 100% of people. You want to make a, a Zelda game that resonates with 85% of your crowd. You have to find some way to match the lore immersion, the Zelda storytelling, the feeling of dungeon exploration the feeling of puzzle solving with the feeling of i want to explore this world i want to be in it this is what matters right and you have to find a way to make that meld and that is the hardest task i can possibly think of to give to any video game developer but if there's anyone that can do it it's nintendo yep okay so last thing last question matt do you think the future of zelda is bright I absolutely always think that the future of Zelda is bright. They Man. made it through Spirit Tracks. They made it through Phantom Hourglass. They can they can make it into the next generation. Max, do you think the future of Zelda is bright? <laughs> well, if someone had asked me that the last time Skyward Sword came out, I would have said no. <laughs> uh, but this time, I will say yes. Uh, other than that, I hope it's darker because there's underground areas yes tonally darker tonally darker (laughs) i also think the future of zelda is bright i think we're going to great places so and hopefully we'll know the answers to a lot of these questions sooner rather than later i personally think again i've said this several times i think breath of the wild 2 gets a big old trailer at e3 of next year yeah i totally agree and then releases in like fall or winter of 22 but that's what i think anyway so we'll see. We shall see. But that's okay. We have Metroid Dread between now and then. Which got like a nine out of ten out of IG. I know today, it looks by the amazing. Way. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Looks awesome. Cool. Hey, Max, seriously, uh, thanks, man. We really appreciate you coming back on for this bonus episode. Obviously, this was a very big topic and there's a lot of ground to cover. But if there was any person that we know that is more qualified to cover it, then we don't know a person we more qualified person, to cover. Actually, that's yeah, just Yeah, I was about you. to say, your, so, your, like, your, whole, <laughs> your whole train of thought there was incorrect. No, yeah, it, it didn't make any sense at all. It's just Max. So Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, <laughs> I'm always down to talk 
at great, great length about this and more. <laughs> Glad to hear it. We uh, obviously are going to be tying up Skyward Swords coverage in the next few weeks. But uh, look, I mean, after that, we're back to a few another, weeks, meaning like four. We're after that. We're back to another top down Zelda. And Matt and I are pretty sure that's going to be a link to the past. So, oh, boy, definitely going to be some stuff to talk about there. Yeah. I've never played it, and I'm super excited. He has never played it. I'm so... Oh, this is going to be a good, vicarious experience. Ah, uh, can't, cannot wait. But regardless, uh, this is not the last time that you will hear Max Nichols on Sacred Realms, the Zelda Retrospective podcast, uh, <laughs> because we love having him on, and it's always a great time. So Always. Yep. So anyway, all that is to say, Max, thank you. You're the best. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Yep. All right, guys, um, as always, again, anyone listening to this, you are on our Patreon. You're on the iTunes subscription. Sorry, it's not iTunes anymore. Apple, Apple Podcasts. Yeah, the Apple Podcast subscription channel. You're already bought into what we're doing, and we appreciate you so much. Uh, again, feel free to let us know if this conversation was fun or if you'd like to see anything different, we're always open to your feedback and we're just here to have a good make, time and, 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 and make everyone happy. You make know, like, content for you. Yeah. Yep. Truly. That is what we do in the meantime, guys, may your hearts be full. May your arrows never miss. We'll catch you next time. Sacred Realms is an independent podcast production, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Our music comes from Zelda and Chill by Mikkel and is graciously provided to us by Mikkel in Game Chops Records. Zelda and Chill is available to stream on Spotify or to purchase directly from GameChops.com. Finally, our thanks go to Nintendo for creating such exceptional and innovative experiences. 